this morning we have Chris as well as Jack and Jane Thompson to lead us in the reading of God's Word. Oh, Chris is not Chris, just Jane and Jack Thompson. Please stand for the lesson from the Gospels. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut down from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be, they will, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in, in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. For in those days there will be such tribulation as had not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learns its lesson. As soon as it branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. 
Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Begin every week speaking more directly to the children among us. So kids, I have a question for you. If someone were to give you the option of knowing everything that will ever happen to you in your life, would you take it? You can know what you're going to eat tomorrow. You can know where you're going to go to college. You're going to know who you're going to marry, what jobs you'll have. You're going to know whether you really will become that professional athlete that you're aspiring to be. You're going to know how many kids you're going to have, all the places that you'll ever live. You can know all the happiest moments in your entire life, as well as all the worst moments of your life. If someone gave you that option today, right now, would you take it? Do you want to know? Do you, not, do you want to know what's going to happen to you? Whether it's today, tomorrow, or off in the distant future. And I would say that there's this universal impulse within all of us as humans to always be asking that question. What is going to happen? What's going to happen? Are you the kind of person that skips to the end of a book to find out what's going to happen before you read the whole thing? Or do you watch a TV series, not because you particularly enjoy it, but you just need to know what's going to happen at the end? Or... Why even bother with watching the series? Just go online and read the entire story for itself and find out what's going to happen. Or maybe you're watching a scary or a suspenseful movie and you just can't stand all the tension and the uncertainty, so you ask everybody around you, even those who haven't seen the movie yet, what's going to happen? Do you all know what horoscopes are, kids? Have you heard of that? Horoscopes? Well, horoscopes are a way of trying to like, give a little bit of a hint about what your day is going to be like. And so, according to these horoscopes, I'm a Pisces, which means I was born uh, sometime in the month of February, and I looked up my horoscope for today. All right, everybody listen. Communication is very important today. Very timely, I think. <laughs> Written, spoken, and even body language we will all convey potent meanings. The people you'll be dealing with right now are tuned into you very closely. Even strangers will almost be able to finish your sentences. I, I, I swear, this is, I looked this up this morning. This is what it said. This means that you're probably not going to be able to get an awful, done, an awful lot done in very little time today. If you've, been waiting, if you've been waiting for feedback from someone, call them today. They'll have an answer. Right, so if you get a call later today, ask you how the sermon goes, be prepared for an answer. So this horoscope, why do people read horoscopes like this? It's because I don't, even need, I don't need to know the far-off future in my life. I don't need to know the end of all my days. If my horoscope, horoscope just gives me an expectation about what today will bring, that's enough for me. You see, we believe that knowing the future will give us a greater sense of control over our lives. That's what we want right? Sense of control. 
But Jesus, and we'll see that in the passage today, Jesus, he gives us knowledge about the future, but the knowledge that he gives about the future has the exact opposite purpose. We seek knowledge about the future to gain control. Jesus gives knowledge about the future in order that we might surrender control of our lives and to trust in God. So let's pray, indeed, that the Lord would help us to see the many ways in which we need to surrender control of our lives and trust in him. Please pray with me. Dear God, uh, we acknowledge that the future is oftentimes scary and uncertain, but we pray that you give us hearts that all also acknowledge the surety and guarantee of our future because you are the God who is in control. You've ordained all things and you know all things. And I pray that we would be comforted by that thought that our lives are truly in the hands of a loving Heavenly Father, and that no matter what is happening around us, all the things that we're told will happen in Mark 13, no matter what instability there is in the world, no matter what dangers there are or suffering that we experience, that we can trust in you in the midst of it. And in trusting in you, we might find true joy in life now and forever. In Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, so this morning is Palm Sunday, which typically will be a sermon on that passage that was read for us in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. But I could not pass up the opportunity to preach on Mark chapter 13, because Mark chapter 13 is actually uh, one of the most, if not the most, disputed and difficult passage in the entire gospel of Mark. The main question is, is Jesus speaking to his disciples about a near future, what's about to happen to them? Or is he telling his disciples what's going to happen in the distant future? And as so often is, is true with our faith, when two seemingly opposite options are posed, the answer is not simply one or the other, but in some ways the answer is both. Jesus is both speaking of the near future for the disciples as well as the distant future, which means Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but he's also speaking directly to us And the key to understanding this passage is to recognize that Jesus is speaking of two different time horizons. Okay, he's speaking about what will soon happen to his disciples and what will happen to his disciples in the far-off future. So how do we determine who Jesus is speaking to or what time horizon Jesus is talking about? Well, Jesus, how we know what Jesus is referring to is found in two different phrases that we need to pay close attention to and It's very easy to miss, but there's two different phrases that occur all throughout the passage. One of them is these things, these things, and the second is those days or that day. So all throughout Mark chapter 13, Jesus is talking about two things. He's talking about these things and those days. And when he talks about these things, he is referring to the impending destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. And so just that you're aware, most people think that the Gospel of Mark was the first Gospel written in the New Testament, and estimates have it written sometime around 60 AD or sometime in the 60s. So at the time of the writing of the Gospel of Mark, the temple will be destroyed within the decade. Right? That's like somebody saying something's going to happen before 2030. It's about to happen. Yet, When Jesus is referring to those days or that day, he's not talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about his eventual return. He's talking about some indeterminate time in the future that all Christians should be prepared for. 
So Jesus gives us this knowledge about the near and the distant future, but again, he doesn't do it to satisfy our curiosity, not just to answer the question, what's going to happen? But whenever Jesus speaks about the future, he always does so in service to the present. Jesus gives us knowledge about the future in order that we might know how to faithfully serve and follow him in the present. So that's what we're going to be speaking about this morning. How can we find encouragement in order to faithfully persevere and follow after Jesus in knowing the future that awaits us? So again, two points this morning. What are these things that Jesus speaks of? And then secondly, what are those days that await us? So first, these things. Just know that these things, um, it's kind of conf- it's part of the confusion I think lies in the fact that Mark chapter 13 goes back and forth between those, these things and those days. So he talks about these things in the first 13 chapters as well as in the section about the fig tree, another fig tree in the book of Mark. And then he talks about those days in 14 to 27 and then at the end 32 to 37. So first we'll focus on these things. Read with me again as we, uh, I reread the first two verses in chapter 13. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now you have to know that if there's anything in all the world for the very first Christians that seemed permanent and solid and stable, something that you could count on, something that had always been there and would always be there, it was the temple in Jerusalem. The blocks of stone that were used to construct the temple in Jerusalem were enormous. One ancient Jewish historian named Josephus, he says that some of the stones were 40 cubits in length. Y'all know what cubit is? So the way a cubit is like an ancient measurement of length, it's typically between like the tip of your finger and your elbow, so it's about 18 inches. So if a stone is 40 cubits, that means one stone that's used to make part of the temple wall is 60 feet in length, right? So from me, almost to the very back of our sanctuary. These were the stones that built the temple that Jesus said, not one of these stones will remain. Even more than that, on the south end was what was called the Roman, I'm sorry, the royal portico. The portico was 45 feet wide, consisted of three aisles supported by four rows of columns. The columns were crowned with Corinthian capitals and rose to a height of 40 feet above our own sanctuary. Josephus writes this, the thickness of each column was such that it would take three men with outstretched arms touching one another to envelope it. Right, so if me, two other people, put all of our arms together, then maybe then we could put our arms around these columns So when Jesus says, do you see this great building? Do you see these great stones? Not one stone upon another will not be thrown down. It's a shocking statement. It's one that causes the disciples to undoubtedly, in their minds, associate it with what the worshipers will shout during, or shouted during Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. You see, Jews at that time, they were looking for the messianic kingdom. And for all the disciples, when Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed, bells are going off in their heads saying, God's kingdom, the messianic kingdom is coming. There's a close connection between the two. When the temple is destroyed, that means God's kingdom has come. So the disciples naturally ask, like all of us when we think about the future, what's going to happen? 
Verse 3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, his closest disciples, they take him to the side, they ask him privately, tell us, when will these things, remember I'm saying this section is about these things, this is what the disciples are asking about, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And then Jesus said to them, see, and this is a very important word in this chapter, Four times this word is used, and it's translated every other time as be on guard. You probably noticed that. Jesus is always telling his disciples, be on guard. That's the same word here. So even though it just says see, it says be on guard that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. They will lead many astray. And when, when you hear war of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that all these things that seem to be signs of the end of the world, false teachers claiming the name of Jesus, political disputes and wars, natural disasters. I mean, things don't change, right? If you go on YouTube today, you, YouTube, what are signs of the end of the world? These are the very things that all of these videos will be pointing to. All the headline-worthy news that we have a tendency to focus on and associate with signs of the end of the world, what is Jesus saying? He's saying these things are real, but don't focus on them. Be on guard here means don't get distracted. Don't get caught up looking for signs or interpreting signs or being anxious or worried about apparent signs, but instead... Understand that what to expect the normal Christian life to look like in the midst of all of these so-called signs. You see what, I'm, what Jesus is saying? He's saying all these crazy things will be happening in the world. Don't focus on these things. But while these things are happening, live in a certain way. And he tells us what that way will look like, what should look like, in verses 9 through 13. Again, verse 9 be on your guard. Watch out. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What Jesus is saying here is that the expectation for the normal Christian life is gospel proclamation in response to persecution. Jesus is saying that persecution of Christians is not a sign of the end of the times. It's not a sign that everything's falling apart. It's a sign of faithful discipleship. In other words, don't be surprised when you encounter opposition for being a Christian and understand that for the Christian, opposition can often serve as a sign that you're actually doing the right thing. Church, we should not be surprised when we encounter opposition in the world, especially opposition for our faith. Kids especially. I know this is difficult. 
But Jesus is saying, don't be surprised if you're excluded in some way for seeking to faithfully follow Christ. And I know that can be a very scary thought. Because there may be nothing more important to you than acceptance from a group of people, or really just the desire that we all have not to be different. To not be weird. Which following Jesus sometimes feels like in our world today, not just for kids. But Jesus' encouragement to you is that opposition is an opportunity. Opposition for our faith is always an opportunity. And what's interesting in this example of the disciples is that Jesus says the disciples are not persecuted because they proclaim the gospel. Did you catch that? The order? The disciples are not persecuted because they proclaim the gospel. They're first persecuted, and then they proclaim the gospel. They take their persecution as an opportunity to faithfully witness to Christ and his kingdom. The lesson for all of us is that when we experience these things that Jesus is talking about, and sometimes they feel like the end of the world, but they're not. They're part of the normal Christian life and experience. See, discipleship is not defined by a focus on the future, but discipleship is defined by faithful presence in the present. In the midst of all these things that Jesus talks about, religious controversies, political turmoil and unrest, natural disasters, physical trials and suffering, family conflict and drama, have any of you experienced any of those things? Do not those things define our world today? And Jesus is saying, in the midst of all those things, what it means to be a Christian is to be faithfully present and to proclaim the gospel. All of us, I think, have gone through difficult seasons in our life where the sorrow and the oppression feels overwhelming and you might feel like it's never going to end. And you wonder to yourself, how long, O oh Lord, how long must we endure this season or stage of life? It's so hard. You feel like you can't bear it. Mark chapter 13, verse 13, gives us Jesus' answer to that question. He says this, The one who endures to the very end, it's that person who will be saved. The question is, is that a comforting thought? All you have to do is endure to the very end, and then you'll be saved. To me, that sounds like a really long time. I don't know if I can do that. Or you might be someone hearing me say that opposition is an opportunity for you to proclaim the gospel. And you're a kid at school, and it's difficult. You say, okay, you say that Jesus wants me to view opposition as an opportunity, but opposition is devastating. It's so difficult. And telling others about Jesus is hard and scary, and I don't know what to do or how to do it. The encouragement for us today is Jesus understands that. And he gives us encouragement in the midst of that. And we find that encouragement when Jesus talks not just about these things that we experience, but when he points our eyes to those days and the guarantee and the faithfulness that will come for us as Christians in those days. And so I'm going to skip to the very end of that passage in verses 32 and 37. We're going to focus on that. Jesus says at the end of this chapter, but concerning that day or that hour, so no, when he's saying that day, it's, in, it's not these things, it's not the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, but he's talking about that day when he will come again to judge, as our creed says, the living and the dead. 
and we pray that Jesus will make all things new, this is when it's going to happen, when he's going to return. He's saying, that day is what I'm talking about right now. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What's instructive for us is that Jesus never really answers the disciples' questions. The very first question the disciples asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that these things have come? Instead, he almost says the exact opposite. He tells them, you're going to see the temple destroyed. The one thing that you thought could never happen, that's going to happen. But that is not the sign of the end of the times that you think of it. Your job, as you see and experience these things, is to faithfully endure. But about those days, or the timing of that day, Jesus says, you can't know. He says, I don't even know. What does he say? He says, only the Father knows. What Jesus says is the Father knows, and to know that the Father knows is enough. Nobody knows. You can't know. Jesus says, I can't even know, but the Father knows. And for us, to know that the Father knows should and is enough for us. Your life may be difficult. The Bible literally says you might be hated by all people. And for people pleasers like me, and I'm assuming many of us, that's like a terrifying thought. Why would I want to be hated by all people? How in any way is that a good life? But the great comfort in the midst of that is to know that nothing happens apart from the will and knowledge of your loving Heavenly Father. That's what Christ is pointing us to in the midst of all of the difficulties of life. So to know that the Father knows, is this a comfort to you? Or does it disturb you a little bit? Because the fact that only the Father knows all things and ordains all things, does that make God actually seem a little less loving to you than he might be? I mean, think about the disciples. If God really loved the disciples, how could they be unjustly beaten and brought before authorities? How could they be rejected by even their own families? I mean, can you imagine anything more painful than that? Your closest loved ones rejecting you because of your faith, which sadly happens often even today in many parts of the world. If God really loved you, then wouldn't he want you to be accepted by those people whose acceptance that you long for and desire? Because of God's sovereignty, which is what the Bible describes, his knowledge and ordaining of all things, if God's sovereignty disturbs you or it's difficult to accept, then I ask you first to consider the alternative. The alternative is that there is no God in control. Or that maybe there is some God out there, but for whatever reason, he's not choosing to interfere in your life. And my question to you is, if that is true, then where's the source of comfort in that? What's your hope during times of trial and suffering? To believe that there's no greater purpose to your suffering, that you're on your own to make the most of it, that it's all up to you? That's not good news. 
But the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ is that it's for our good that we don't know the future. It's for our good that we don't know all the things that are going to happen into our life. It's for our good that only God knows all these things. Because of what it forces us to do is to trust in the one who knows in the midst of our trials, our difficulties, and our uncertainties. God promises that he'll not give us more than we can bear. And in fact, the process of bearing through the challenges of these things in our lives, when it feels like the world may be crumbling beneath our feet, when we trust in God for these things, then it prepares us for those days, that day of his return. See, throughout history, some of the greatest growth in the life of the church has been during the times of most difficulty, with the most instability, the most danger, the most persecution. History confirms that the church thrives when it is challenged. I think the reason, or one of the reasons, is the simple, simple biblical truth that faith is strengthened by trials. Trials and suffering are the fuel that supercharge a Christian's faith. Jesus continues for the very last time in the chapter, be on your guard. He said, then he says the same thing in a, in a little different way, stay awake. Be on guard, stay awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with with his work, he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And the words he uses to end this chapter, what I say to you, I say to all again, stay awake. What unites both of these sections, the section about those, these things, and here the section about those days, is the watchful posture that Christians are called and commanded to adopt. It says, be on your guard. Stay awake. So the question that we must ask each of us is, are you awake? You see, the important part is not that we know the precise timing of Christ's return. We're not supposed to be looking for the signs of it. Wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. All those things are real, but they're not ultimate. But as we will declare together soon in our communion liturgy, we are to put our hope in the fact that Christ will return. Not when he returns, but he will return. And we say he will return not simply because we're pointing to the fact that he's going to come back in the future, but will in the sense of it's a guarantee. It's an inevitability. It's something so secure you can stake your life on it. Christ will return. So be on guard. Watch out. Don't be caught sleepwalking through life and sleepwalking through your faith. Because if you do, Jesus says you won't be ready. Not only will you not be ready, you won't want to be ready. You won't long for his return in the way that the Christians during this period did. Being awake means that you live with an awareness of reality that's frankly intangible and inaccessible to much of our daily lives. 
but it means that you cultivate the kind of life that longs for and rejoices with the coming of the Lord. Being awake means that you're not surprised by the trials you experience and the opposition that you encounter as a Christian. And being awake means that you know that your Heavenly Father knows everything that you're going through. He's the only one who knows, and he's the only one that you can trust in. What does the Bible tell us in Romans 8, 28? God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Your Heavenly Father knows what you're going through, and one of the great hopes of the Christian life is not only that Christ will return, but even before he was returned, right now, in the present, as you experience these things, the difficulties of our life, he will draw near to you. He'll give you meaning and purpose in your sufferings, and he will use it that you might be a witness to others of the glories of Christ and his kingdom. So I don't know how long these days will last, or these things will last. I don't know how long those days will be, or when that day will come. But during this period, we're not called to passively wait, but to faithfully endure and proclaim the gospel, all the while remembering the words of the Apostle John, the very last words in the entire scriptures, says this. Jesus testifies to these things, and he says, surely I'm coming soon. That day, however long it is in the future, whenever it comes, Jesus says, it's soon. Stay awake, be ready. And when you're awake and when you are ready, then you could say with the Apostle John, come, Lord Jesus, come. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this, the grass grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we desire a lot of things in our life. We want a lot of things to come. Come, Lord, a husband or a wife. Come, Lord, children, happy and healthy children. Come, Lord, success in my career, in my business. Come, Lord, wonderful experiences and travels. There's so many things that call us out in this world. Yet I pray that you would remind us that what all of us truly need deep down is for Lord Jesus to come into our life here and now in order that we might long for his future coming when he will come and bring his kingdom in fullness and glory. We acknowledge, Lord, our tendency to overemphasize and to be anxious and worried by all the happenings in our world both on a a macro level as well as even in our own lives. I pray, Lord, that we would not focus on those things, but that you would turn our eyes from those things and onto your good and sovereign will. Help us remember that you are the one who knows all things. To know that the reason you have not sent Christ yet to return to us is that you still have a purpose for us in our lives. That you still have many occasions for us to turn opposition to our faith into opportunities to proclaim the glories and graces of Jesus Christ and the gospel. 
particularly during this Holy Week that's coming up, that we're in now. I pray, Lord, that we would have, you would give us many opportunities and that we would take full advantage of them to share with others the true hope and life that we have in Jesus. And not only that life that we have, but the life that others can have if only they would turn to him by faith and trust and love. We thank you so much for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.